Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. If you will, take your copy of Scripture. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And don't stress out, uh, our students are leaving because they're getting ready to serve for our Valentine's luncheon. They're not all leaving because I'm about to preach. None of that's going on, so... uh, Thank you to the students for helping us with that. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 is going to be our text. And uh, so if you've got your copy of Scripture, open that. If you need a Bible, there's one, should be one in one of the sections of the seat in front of you. Uh, We're going to read through this passage of Scripture, these 18 verses. And what I want you to look for are the the words that repeat. So Just pay attention to what is repeated over and over again, as we, as we read this section of Scripture. Jesus begins, Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Did you catch the word that was repeated over and over again throughout that text of Scripture? 18 times, uh, 18 verses rather, 9 times in 18 verses, you have Jesus talking about the Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, the, the sermon begins in chapter 5 with the blessings, the Beatitudes. As we're going to discover in a couple of weeks, it ends in chapter 7 with warnings or, or kind of reminders from Jesus. And, and I think what he does in the sermon is he moves everything to the center of the sermon. The, the, the middle of the sermon is chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. It's the centerpiece of what Jesus is communicating there on the mountain that day some 2,000 years ago. And the centerpiece of that is the model prayer that he teaches us how to pray. But in that centerpiece, those 18 verses, these 18 verses, nine times Jesus reflects on the Father who is the focus of this central aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, meaning that the Father is the primary focus of our attention 
in relation to Christian piety and Christian worship. Jesus deals with a triad here, praying, giving, and fasting. And he explains what they're to be like in the life of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But those are focused on a relationship with the heavenly Father. So what I'd like you to do for a few minutes is look with me at three basic observations from these 18 verses about what it means to practice our righteousness uh, by way of, of being followers of Jesus in the, in the kingdom of heaven. Here's observation number one. Our practices in the kingdom are for the glory of the Father, not for the praise of people. What we do in Christian living shouldn't be for others to see. That's why Jesus begins with, Beware, lest your righteousness, lest you uh, practice your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus told us that we're to let our good works shine before others, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. A careless reading would find chapter 6, verse 1 and 5, verse 16 contradictory, or paradoxical at least. But that's not at all what's going on. Jesus is dealing with motivation. Remember chapter 5, verse 48. We're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus longs for us to be right on the inside as well as on the outside. The problem is not our righteous activity. There's nothing wrong with you acting in a way that glorifies the Father, pointing to the Father through our behavior. There is something wrong, however, with us practicing our righteousness so that others will see our practice of righteousness. The problem or the issue at hand is motivation. In Jesus', in Jesus audience that day were many Pharisees and religious leaders who practiced their piety so that others would see them. And that's who Jesus is kind of targeting. He, he talks about three different aspects of practicing your righteousness. Uh, giving, praying, and fasting. In giving, the, some of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they would let everybody know that they were about to give. You know, they might, they might come into the, the worship space and when they would drop their offering in the offering plate, they would drop every coin one by one. So that every time it hit the bottom, it dinged. And everyone would know they were giving multiple things. They, Jesus illustrated it by saying they sounded a trumpet before them to, to be seen by others. When they would pray, they would go to the street corner and they would stand before God and before other people, and they'd raise their hands, and they would pray loudly so that everyone would be, know that they were praying outwardly and publicly. When they would fast, and the Pharisees and religious leaders had, had specific days that they would fast. When they would fast, they, they would disfigure their faces. They would let everyone know that they were fasting. They would wear dress that would indicate that they were fasting. And so Jesus says on three occasions, if you practice these pietistic or pious uh, activities in a way so that others see you, and that's your motivation, then that's the reward in itself. If you want to be seen by others when you give, then that's your reward. If you want to be seen by others when you pray or heard by others when you pray, that's your reward. If you want to be, uh, if you want to be noticed for your fasting by others, then that is your reward. Jesus says that's not the way that we are to be. We're not to seek out our own glory. We're to seek out the glory of the Father in the way in which we live. Now, if you compare what we see and experience in contemporary Christianity, we don't have a whole lot of people that flaunt their giving. I mean, it could happen. You could talk about what you give, but not in the way that the Pharisees and religious leaders do. And, and I don't see too many people walking down the street, holding their hands up, praying out loud and publicly in a way for all to see. 
And we don't practice fasting near as often as they did in those days. So how is it that, that we do these sort of things or that we might have a tendency to do these things? We might not practice our faith, practice our piety, or have a temptation to practice our piety, specifically like the Pharisees and religious leaders. But folks, we live in a very self-oriented, self-glorifying culture, particularly with social media where you can scroll through Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, and you can see all sort of images that any of us want to make public about ourselves. And if you scroll long enough, you might come across that picture of someone with a Bible in front of them and a cup of coffee, and they, they have this, this headline, about to start my devotions this morning. Or you might see somebody who's gone on a mission trip recently, and it's not a mission trip of what God's doing. It's a selfie mission trip, you know, where you see their face and, the, and there's, there's work done in the background. And, and I'm not saying that those are always wrong, but here's the problem. If the reason we're drawing attention to our religious expression is for others to notice us and get likes and get comments, then Jesus says, you have had your reward. He says very clearly that the practice of our faith should be done in ways that are private and secret. That's the point. So how do we do that? How do we practice our faith in ways that are not for our glory, but for the Father's glory? Well, Jesus gives us two indications here, two ways to make sure that that happens. Number one, we're to practice our faith with sincerity. With sincerity, not hypocritically. Jesus uses the word hypocrite on a number of occasions here, carried with it the idea of someone who is an actor. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, In ancient drama, actors did not wear makeup. They wore masks representing the part they played. It's a vivid picture that gives a, that, that, that provide, is provided for us of the hypocrite, who pretends to be one thing, but all the time he is something altogether different. Even in Jesus' own day. One of the things that had happened in the Jewish culture, well, the, the Greeks had brought it into the Jewish culture, there were theaters there were plenty of actors in Jesus' day that the people would have known and understood. And when they played their part, they played their part with a mask on. And Jesus identifies those who want their religion to be public and to glorify themselves. He identifies them as hypocrites. As people who are different on the inside than they are on the outside. And Jesus tells us that we're not to practice our faith that way, there's to be a sincerity to our faith and to our faith practice. It's not something that we're trying to show off. John Stott put it this way, we're not to be self-conscious in our giving, for self-consciousness will readily deteriorate into self-righteousness. How do we do that in these three practices? How do we avoid self-consciousness in giving? Well, we give and then we forget that we gave. Jesus put it this way, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Some of you may ask, well, is it wrong for me to get tax credit for my giving? No, that's not wrong at all. But if you're giving to get tax credit, maybe there's a problem with motivation, problem with something that's wrong. Basically, what it means for us as Christians, when we give for good reasons or give through the church, why don't just give and walk away and forget that we gave? We ought not be self-conscious. We ought not congratulate ourselves for the piety that we practice. Same thing with prayer. Some of you will spend some time in prayer today. Fantastic. We need prayer. We're going to talk about that in depth here in just a few minutes. But we don't need to pat ourselves on the back for how many minutes we prayed. 
or how long we prayed or didn't pray. We, we ought to pray out of a sense of desperation, realizing we need God. Our memory verse for this month is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reason we pray is we desperately need God to intervene in our lives, to move in our lives. That means that any time I spend in prayer really and truly has little to do with my own piety and more to do with my own need. So I'm not be bragging about that at all. There's a sense in which we should practice those disciplines and then forget that we've practiced them. Same thing with fasting. And, and I would encourage you, fasting is a, is a wonderful discipline that ought to be true in the lives of us as Christ followers. Why? Well, we struggle with self-control in our culture. Not doing what we ought to do and doing what we shouldn't do. And what is fasting is setting aside food or drink for a period of time in order to focus our attention on God. And what does it do? It strengthens our self-control muscles. It, it, it kind of functions in a, in, in, with the Holy Spirit to help us deepen our levels of self-control in order to be more faithful to God. There's no, nothing wrong at all with practicing fasting. In fact, I think Jesus assumed we would. Did you catch with all three of these practices? He says, when you give... When you pray, when you fast, for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus made the assumption, I might even, it probably is stronger, he, he, made, he gave an imperative that this is what the Christ follower should be doing. He should be giving, he should be praying, he should be fasting, but he should be doing so in a way that is not about showing himself off. It should be sincere. The second way we make sure that we're doing this for the Lord's glory and not for ours is we practice these disciplines in secrecy. In secrecy. On three occasions, all three practices, he says, do this so that your Father who is in secret will see and your Father who is in secret will reward you. It's not about others knowing what you're doing. It's about God knowing what you're doing. It's about God, you being in a right relationship with Him. It matters more that you and God are on the same page with your giving and with your fasting and with your praying than that anybody else in the world knows. It doesn't matter who knows. It matters that God knows and it matters that God sees. A word about being secret. To be secret means that we need to be unencumbered by distractions and in our day and age where we're constantly on screens or constantly have smartphones around us, or for some of you that are parents with kids in your home, having time where you can be alone and be in the secret place is hard to find. Okay? If you're a mom or if you're a dad, if you have kids in your home, it might mean you need to stay up a little later where everybody else is asleep or wake up a little earlier where everybody else is still asleep, so you can have that time with God. For many of us, it's simply going to mean that we don't take our smartphones with us into our time of devotion, where the distraction of the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, notification, whatever notifications you have, is not calling our attention back to something else. It means that we're with God and with God alone. Why? Because the purpose of these practices is not for anyone else to know what's going on. It's for God to know what's going on. And with fasting, if you decide you're going to fast, maybe you need to let a spouse know. Because if you decide not to eat for a day or for several days, your spouse needs to know. That's not, that's not making it more public than it needs to be. But if you decide to fast, then it ought to be something that's merely between you and God. I remember years ago, I was listening to a sermon. I listened to a preacher preach at a conference. He was talking about fasting. 
What struck me as odd is he was talking about the fast that he had just done. It just, it just struck me as, as in discord with what Jesus said. We're, it, it's not something that we're to talk about what we do in that. It is for the purpose of growing in relationship with Jesus Christ. So, these practices are for the Lord's glory. They're not for ours. Let me give you a second observation. Our practices in the kingdom are significant. These three practices are significant because they are relational, not because they are religious. In other words, sometimes we think that that these are the things we've got to do to be good religious people. No, that's not the point. They're there in our lives because of the relationship that they strengthen in a relationship with God. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus calls God Father nine times in 18 verses here. Nobody in the Old Testament called God Father. The religious leaders in Jesus' own day did not call God Father. Go back and look at the prophets. They didn't refer to God as Father. But Jesus referred to God as Father in filial, relational terms. Now, we know that God, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, did not beget God the Son in the same way that a human uh, father begets his son. The, The picture is a relational picture. The Bible describes God as Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son is the one who accomplished salvation while God the Father is the one who planned salvation. And when God the Son was on earth, He communicated with His Father through prayer. And if you look at the way Jesus prayed, almost every prayer Jesus prayed in the New Testament, His reference is to God as Father. He invites us into a relationship with God. And these practices are not so that we can enter a relationship with God because that does, it doesn't work that way. We don't meet God by giving or by praying or by fasting We relate to God as our Father as we give, as we pray, and as we fast. Here's why that matters. I I used this illustration several years ago in a sermon I preached here, but it's worth repeating. R.A. Torrey was an evangelist and and preacher of a bygone era. He was preaching a conference in Australia, and and somebody gave him an anonymous note, and the note read this. Dr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I've been a member of the church for 30 years. I've tried to be a consistent member. I've been a superintendent of the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. Yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot explain it. Can you help me? Dr. Torrey stood up, read the note in front of all the congregation that was there, the gathered group that was there, and then he said this, This man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member, a faithful Sunday school superintendent, and an elder, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. Dr. Torrey continued, We must give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. But Jesus Christ has great claims upon God, and we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of the claims of Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line, what that means for us. The reason you and I can go to God and call Him Father is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned against God. He completely fulfilled the Old Testament law. He is the perfect embodiment of His own sermon. He he obeyed everything he tells us that we're to do in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He is right and righteous. That's why when he went to the cross, he could go to the cross as our substitute. The perfect Lamb of God. 
He took our sins so that our sins could be washed and forgiven. You and I, when we come to God in prayer, we cannot, must not come to God based on our own righteousness, for it is insufficient. God doesn't hear you today in your time of prayer because you sang a song, because you gave an offering in the offering box. He doesn't hear you in your prayer because you read the Bible this morning, because you showed up at church this week. None of those things are the reason God hears us. That ought to really encourage us because it means that there's no level of righteousness needed on our part for us to be, gain access to God. We can't be righteous enough. It should be gloriously encouraging that all of us can meet God in prayer. Any of us can call God Father in a relationship that is given to us through Jesus Christ. He's the reason why you and I can relate to God. He's the reason why you and I can talk to God. Jesus made it possible for us to use the term Father. In fact, if you really think about it, what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember that prayer he prayed, Father, if, it, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. You realize that the perfect Son of God prayed a prayer that God did not grant? God didn't take the cup from Jesus. He sent Jesus onto the cross to bear the sins of the world. God not answering Jesus in the, in the positive affirmation there, on the, there before the cross is the reason why you and I get to pray and call God Father today. He hears us on the basis of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have life. And the Father that we pray to is also the King who rules. There's nothing you can bring before God in prayer that is outside of His ability to bring, uh, bring to bear in our lives. That's observation number two. Let me give you a third observation. Our practices, and, and I mean specifically in this instance our prayers, in the kingdom should follow the pattern taught by Jesus. And this is where Jesus gets to what we typically call the Lord's Prayer, which is probably better defined as the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer might be better articulated as John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. He teaches us this prayer as a way to pray. Pray like this. This is what Jesus says to us. So how does he teach us to pray? Well, do you notice uh, 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 in the model prayer, there, there's something not there. There's not the first person pronoun, I, me, or mine. Jesus says, our Father... Give us this day our daily bread. He's talking about it in, this, in, the relation, in the relational community. God wants us to know him vertically in a relationship as, as father, but he wants us to know him in a community of believers as well. And our prayers ought to be focused around what God wants to do, not just in me, but what God wants to do in us and through us as his people. And then he teaches us this, our father who is in Heaven. He tells us to talk to God who is where, who is in heaven. I'm afraid sometimes when we, when we read that word, we think of God as being far off. Because God is in the place, and we've sung about that this morning. He's on his throne. He, he's sitting there ruling and reigning. He's in that far off place. And by the way, God is transcendent. He is away from us. He is not like us. But in the, in the language here, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus introduces this model prayer for us, it, the word heaven, our Father who is in heaven, is in the plural. It's not just in the singular. Our Father who is in the heavens, 
might be a more accurate way to, to read that. Why does he say that? Because our God, our Father, is in the place where he sits on his throne. But when you say heavens, it might mean that God is also in the place where our sky is. He's also with us. I think this is affirmed, by the way, in the rest of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Matthew, when Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven, singular, and on earth, he is in both places. Then he says, I'm with you always. And later on in Matthew 6.10 we are to pray that God's will would be done in heaven, singular, and on earth, singular, meaning that our God is not just a far-off God. He's not just way out there away from us. I want you to hear this. Our Father who is in the heavens means that He is with us. He is present. He is available. He knows what is going on in our lives. He's not just distant. He, he is with us and He is near us and He invites us to know Him. Now, the rest of the petitions and the prayer, I'm not a huge fan of Karl Barth and all of his theology, but he makes an interesting observation about these petitions. He said the first three petitions announce God's lordship. And then the second three petitions reveal the frail human creature that depends on his lordship. So, so the first three are we're to pray that God's name would be holy and hallowed. We're to pray that God's kingdom would come. We're to pray that, that God's will would be done. It acknowledges that God is Lord. It starts our prayer not with us. How many times have we been guilty of starting our prayers with us? God, here's what's going on in my life and I need your help. And, and, and uh, sometimes that, that's as if we need to inform God about what's going on. When Jesus said God already knows, our Father already knows what we need before we even ask Him. Or, or how many times have we been guilty of this where we go before God in prayer as if... Uh, as if we know best what to do, and we say something to God somewhere along this line. God, I've got this problem, and I really know how it needs to be fixed. If you would just do this, it, we don't say it exactly like that, but that's essentially what we're doing. We're telling God that if he would do things this way, it would be great because it would solve the stuff that's going on in our lives. Jesus doesn't tell us to pray like that. He tells us to acknowledge at the outset that our Father is the one who is Lord, to pray that His kingdom would come, that's His rule and reign through us, and to pray that His will would be done in our lives. The other prayers, as Bart recognized, are about our frailty and our need. In other words, we need God to feed us, we need God to forgive us, and we need God to save us or to guide us. Jesus invites us to pray about our meals Jesus invites us to pray about uh, forgiveness. Jesus invites us to pray about direction and about guidance in our lives. What are those? They're acknowledgments of our dependence upon God. We need God far more than we quickly admit. Let me give you an application, follower of Jesus, something that, that would be helpful for you to do. You should memorize the model prayer. Many of you already have. In fact, if we, if we said it out loud, you could probably quote it along with us. But I'm not suggesting that you memorize it so that you pray it and wrote. As if we just need to pray it this way and we're done. No, I think the reason Jesus said pray then like this is because what he wants us to do is pray in the framework that Jesus taught us to pray. In other words, let the phrases and the words that Jesus gave us form the foundation of how we talk to God about what's going on in our lives. For, for example, our Father who is in heaven. We might pause over the word our and thank God that He didn't just save me, but that He saved us. And thank God that we're in a community of believers that prays for one another. We might pause when we say our Father and reflect on the glorious truth that Jesus made it possible for us to call God Father. 
Maybe you're in the room and you, you've got a great example as a human father. You might want to thank God that, that God is even a better father than your human father. Maybe you're in the room and you have the opposite example. You don't have a good human father. But you might pause and say, God, I know I don't have a good example on this earth, but I have a perfect heavenly father who loves and cares for me. In other words, let those phrases, let those words drive the way we pray. One that's become particularly meaningful for me in, in recent days and weeks is the last phrase in the prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you realize that Satan wants to destroy you? He wants to destroy me. He wants to bring about our failure. And he wants to do so through the pathway of temptations and struggles. You know something? I've been, I've been praying through that phrase for family and for friends and for church members. Let those phrases guide the way that you pray. Here's why I tell you to do that. Because when we pray like this, we're praying in the way that God, through Jesus, ordained that we pray. Now, as we close up, I want you to note something that's tremendously important. Jesus says that we're to ask God to forgive us as we have forgiven others. And then specifically at the end of the prayer, he says that we're to forgive because if we don't forgive, we won't experience forgiveness. What's he getting at? I think what Jesus is doing here is he's, he, he's in the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount. He's bringing us to the crux of the matter in our spiritual lives. Folks, did, again, this is also one reason why this is not the Lord's Prayer because Jesus never had to confess his own sins. It's not him modeling it for us. Here's what I have to pray. He's telling us this is what we need to pray. What do we need? We need forgiveness. The bottom line for every single one of us, if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven and be a part of God's family, is we need forgiveness that only God can provide through Jesus Christ. That's why he tells us to pray about that. And then he focuses on forgiveness at the end. He tells us that those who are part of his family will be people who forgive, not in order to get forgiveness. Because that, that's not the way that works. God doesn't forgive us when we forgive. No, God gives us the grace to forgive after we have been forgiven. The point is that those who are part of his family, this is his kingdom. He's inviting us to be citizens in his kingdom. He's inviting us to apply these practices in a way that show that we are citizens of his kingdom. That he is our Lord, that he is our Savior. So guess what we're to be? We're to be people who forgive others. Say, hey, that's, that's really hard, Pastor. You don't know what someone else has done to me. You don't know what I've experienced. Well, I may not know your life, and I may not know your experiences, but I'll tell you this. No one has ever done to me worse than I've done to God. No one has ever sinned against me longer or more heinously than I have sinned against God. And God, through Jesus Christ, has offered me forgiveness so if God through Jesus has offered me forgiveness, then I ought to offer forgiveness for others. Why? Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It shows the glory of God at work. You say, Pastor, how is that possible? Well, it's only possible through a supernatural uh, enabling by God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you a story where that, that example came, came to bear. Uh, nearly 20 years ago, a woman by the name of Victoria Rubelow was driving to her niece's concert recital. And, and near her in another vehicle were a group of five teenage boys. Uh, one particular boy was Ryan Cushing. They had stolen a credit card, and they had gone out and been a, went on a spending spree. 
they bought a frozen turkey, of all things, along with a whole lot of other stuff. And as uh, foolish teenage boys will do, they decided to do something uh, unalterably foolish. And Ryan took that turkey and threw it out of his car in oncoming traffic. And went through the windshield, demolished the windshield of Victoria's car, and hit her in the face. Uh, she survived the accident, but she had 10 hours worth of surgery and was devastated physically for a number of months uh, and, and took a long time for her to recover. She attended his sentencing about 10 months later. Here's what she said when she went to his sentencing. She spoke to all the, those gathered in the, in, the, in the event where he was standing before the judge. She said, despite all the fear and pain I've learned from this horrific experience to be thankful for, that each day when I wake up, I thank God that I'm alive. I sincerely hope that you have learned from this awful experience, Ryan. There is no room for vengeance in my life, and I do not believe a long, hard prison term would do you, me, or society any good. When the judge gave down the sentence, the judge said this, you're only going to have six months behind bars, five years probation, and some counseling. And when he stated the sentence in front of the courtroom, the courtroom erupted at the frustration of him receiving a sentence that was far too light. But the reason he gave that sentence is because that's something Victoria wanted to have happen. She spoke into that, and the judge listened to her. He went, she went up to Ryan at the end of the sentencing, at the end of the trial. She gave him a hug. She stroked his hair, and she said, I forgive you. I want your life to be the best it can be. God gave me a second chance, and I'm passing it along to you. Say, Pastor, how in the world is it possible to forgive like that? It's only possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christian, if you're here in this room and you've got people to forgive, you've got practices that, that are more public than they ought to be, not in secret, not sincere, the only way that you can experience the kind of kingdom life that God invites us to is to seek out a direct, intimate relationship with your Heavenly Father, to come to Him in spiritual desperation and prayer, and ask Him to change you from the inside. That absolutely can happen. Christian God moves in our hearts and lives, and as we realize the second chance we've been given and the forgiveness we've received, we can exhibit that others. That's what God wants for us as Christians. He wants us to show that we're not like everybody else. Some of you are here today in the room and you can't possibly imagine ever forgiving anyone that way. Well, it may be because you don't have the forgiveness of God in the present. Some of you can't imagine actually praying or giving. Well, it's because you've not been changed by Jesus Christ. It, the, the single most important thing that needs to happen for any person in this room is to experience the forgiveness of God that can only come through Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, rose from the dead so that we could have life, so that we could have a relationship with God. Maybe you're here in the room and you've never actually thought about talking to God as Father. You've never thought that it was possible to be in a relationship with God. It is possible. Jesus made it possible. And I would beg that if you're here today and you haven't trusted Jesus to be your Savior, would you turn your heart to Him in repentance and faith? Would you ask Him to forgive you 
and experience the cleansing that only he can give. Christian, you want to know how to live like a kingdom citizen and forgive? Pursue God in the secret place. Seek him out. Let him change your heart and life so that you, so that I, so that we can be the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that look like Christ, our Savior, who could speak from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what to do. Stand with me, if you will. Our Lord, we come to you in this moment. We recognize that you are our Father in heaven. You are sovereign King and Lord. You have made it possible for us to experience salvation through Jesus. And today in this worship service, we thank you for what you've done to make that forgiveness possible. We recognize as Christians gathered here that all too often our piety is not done with the right perspective or motives. We ask that you forgive us for that. We ask that you help us to pray, to give, to fast in ways that would bring us into a closer relationship with the living Savior. Our Father, pray for any in the room today that have not trusted you as Lord, that have not confessed their sins and experienced the forgiveness of God. Will you work in their hearts and bring them to a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ? We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Forgiver. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.